This is episode 188 of the Church Venture Northwest podcast. We're continuing Women's Camp 2016 with Carrie Patterson. This is session two from Saturday morning. in the middle of daily life, that is when we make disciples. That is when we carry out the Great Commission. I'm going to read again Matthew 20, 18 through 20, because that is what we're doing. We're studying that passage. Um, we're going through the book of Matthew, as I mentioned before. That's kind of our anchor. Um, but specifically, we're looking at what we call the Great Commission, and he says, Jesus says, go therefore, his authority has been given unto me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. Now, before we talked about this, right, the four verbs in this are go, make disciples, baptize, teach, right? But one of them is the main imperative thrust of the passage. And which one is that? Make disciples, right. And then what's that P word that is the other thing? Participles. Awesome. You guys were totally paying attention. So the other three are participles, which means they're verbs that act as adjectives. So they're action words that act as descriptive words. So the thrust of this is make disciples, going, baptizing, teaching. Okay? In everything that we do, we are to be making disciples. Right? That is our job description. No matter our age, no matter our race, no matter our marital status, no matter our income, no matter what our season or stage of life, all of us have the same job description. Right? We all have that in common. So if we're trying to find some common ground with somebody, you're like, I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> begin here. Right? We are all called to the same task, and that is to make disciples. Now, in this particular point um, in history, if we could just be so honest, I don't know about you, but um, I look around at our world, and it is a mess. Anybody? Right? I look around at our world. Our last um, Sunday, our last Sunday, we just spent time lamenting. We've got deaths, we've got shootings, we've got um, racism, we've got good grief stuff going on politically. I mean, right? Can we just, right? I'm not, I'm not going too far in there, I promise. But like, we have just got us a royal mess in our nation, in our world. And it is, it's easy to look around and just get discouraged, um, depressed even, if you will. We hear of all of these tragedies. This isn't even to mention all of the sickness, the disease, all of the things that are not 
the way that it's supposed to be, right? We look around at this world. There's so much that is undone, that's so different from the world that God created it to be, created it to be. And it's so easy, at least for me, to look around and to just throw up our hands. It's just too much. Where do I even begin? How do, how do I even begin to have an impact on the mess of this world, right? It's too big. It's too much. How do I even begin? There's too much to be done. But there is good news. I know that we know it, but we need to be reminded of it. There is good news. God is not caught off guard by any of this. Right? God is not up wringing his hands. Oh no! Oh, candidates are terrible! <laughs> She's not! He's not like, oh, nail-biter, this is terrible. He's not! I, I believe he's grieved by things. I'm not, again, I believe he's grieved by things. Of course, his heart is broken over the things that he sees, but he is not caught off guard. And the good news is that God has a plan. Amen. Right? We've got people telling us that they have the plan for us and that here's the plan. This is what's going to solve it all. I will tell you who has a plan. God has a plan. And the truth is that God has a plan and it's you. <laughs> yeah, you're like, ooh, yeah. We love the plan that doesn't involve us, right? We love the plan, but they're just going to take care of it, right? God has a plan, and it's you. It is you. He is not caught off guard. He has a plan, and it is you. You notice that when Jesus gives the Great Commission, he gives it to people. When Jesus gives it, now, now that world was a mess too, right? It's not just recently that we've got a mess. There's always been all kinds. It looks different in different seasons, but we've always had a mess. But you'll notice that Jesus doesn't, in this moment, he doesn't, when he's leaving and he's handing over, remember from last year we talked about this, he's handing over the work of the kingdom to his disciples and to us, and you'll notice that he does not launch a military attack. He does not launch a political campaign. He launches a revolution of souls through revolutionary disciple-making. That was his plan. His plan to turn the world upside down was revolutionary disciple-makers. Disciple-making, excuse me. He said, you are fishers of men. Go and make disciples. You are fishers of men. Now, revolutionary disciple-making is what I just said, right? Revolutionary, no matter about you, but some of you are like, isn't that an oxymoron? Because revolution, we think of like guns and swords and, and uh, rebellion, you know, or revolt kind of thing. And we think of disciple-making as like <laughs> sipping tea with someone, right? There's that, right? It includes that. But we think of it as a very, just a very, I don't even know what's there. Just very passive, very And we think of a revolution as like something where we need to yell or carry weapons or something. Jesus, we do not understand the radical significance of revolutionary disciple making. 
I believe that what Jesus was telling them to do was revolutionary. Why? Nothing, if you think about it, nothing in the history of the world has influenced the world more than Christianity. Nothing. No one person in the history of this planet, no one person has influenced the world more than Jesus Christ. No one. I have yet to hear of another person who has had the influence of Jesus Christ. So his method, what he did, was revolutionary. Can we agree? Right? Absolutely revolutionary. So why are we trying to come up with a better plan than his? He has a great plan. He had a great method. Revolutionary discipleship has the potential to change the course of history. God has a plan, and it is you. Now, I don't know about you, but if I can just be so honest, uh, when I think, awesome, God has a plan, and it's me. I am his plan. I am his method, right? God's super smart strategy for revolutionizing the world is me? <laughs> this is not a good idea. Right? That is my first just knee-jerk reaction. I'm like, does he even know me? Right? Like, has he seen me? Does he know how I botch things like most of the time? Not even like every once in a while. Like I have a pretty good record of doing or saying it wrong. Okay? Anybody else? Anybody? Right, okay. I'm like, does he even know the real me? Like, I'm not talking Facebook me. I'm not talking like best foot forward me. I'm talking like me. And I can botch things like nobody's business, right? I have been, I, I could give you a whole list, right? Been known to, <laughs> even as I was typing these notes, y'all, I was burning things on the stove, basically setting my house on fire while I was writing about taking over the world for Jesus. I'm like, I can't even cook beans without burning them down, right? I mean, the things I have said from platforms, I'm just like, can I just please take those words back, right? The stupid things that I have done, the ways that I have tried to do the right thing and completely missed it. Does he even know? Does he even know me? And the answer, of course, is yes. Yes, he does even better than you know me, even better than my husband knows me. He knows me better than I know me. I mean, I can just deceive myself into thinking I'm all that, right? And he's like, oh, sweetie, oh, if you even knew. <laughs> right? He knows. Yes, he knows me. Mind-blowing, yes, he knows me, the real me. And God has a plan, and it is you. God has a plan, and it is me. Grace. Right? Sheer grace. God has a plan, and it is you. In his famous book, the old classic, I'm sure many of you have read it, The Master Plan of Evangelism. Anybody? Right? Oh, so, oh, not enough hands. Not enough hands. Okay, go home, buy it. Get it. 
that is your homework. Um, I wanted, I was actually tempted to, to go hog wild and buy a copy for every person here. I did, but you, you all can get it yourself, but good old classic. But in Master Plan of Evangelism, Robert Coleman begins with his famous thesis on discipleship, and it is just this. Men were his method. Men were his method. And if we want to make it gender neutral, which we can, people were his plan. Right? The master plan of evangelism, the master plan for reaching the nations, the master plan for making disciples of all nations, of every, of every ethnos, of every ethnicity, of every people group, of every person, every soul on the planet, his plan was people. That was his plan. In an outstanding book, Intercessory Prayer by Dutch Sheets, he talks about the power that we have in prayer. And he specifically talks about how everything that God does, he does through his people. He has chosen by his love, who knows why, but he has chosen to allow his work and his redemption and his miraculous things and his salvation to, be, to come to us. To come through us, we have to understand our unique, privileged role in the story of God. In the grand adventure, right, of drawing all people to himself. We get, I believe, and maybe this is just me, but I believe we get this sadly skewed view of sovereignty. We get this sadly skewed view of sovereignty, which is like, well, God is sovereign, so this must be his will. What's that, right? Well, I guess he's sovereign, and so I guess whatever he's going to do, he's going to do. Right? That's just fatalism. Right? That is just giving up. <clears throat> thinking the future is set in stone, thinking that whatever happens must be his will. No, it is not. The will of God is clearly revealed in the scriptures. Right? It is not the will of God that millions of unborn children would be murdered. Right? It is not the will of God that people would be shot because of the color of their skin or the uniform they're wearing. It is not the will of God that people would be hating each other and killing each other. It is not the will of God. It is not his will. We know his will. His will is that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. That is his will. And praying for an unsaved family member right now who is going downhill health-wise very quickly. And I just keep telling the Lord, I know your will. And I know he has rejected you, but I know that you are patient and you desire that none would perish and that all will come to repentance. And so I am going to pray for this guy with every last breath that I have because I know that this is your will. We give up so quick. We know his will. Let's pray it. Let's live it out. Every time he gave a commission, he said, preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons. There's his will. He's told us, preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons. He wants to free people from the penalty and the power of sin. He wants to free people from demonic torture and bondage. He wants to free people. That's why he came. Free the captives, make them into disciples. God has a will and he wants to accomplish it through us. God has a plan and it is you. Am I willing? Do I just want someone else to come up with a plan for a better future or am I 
willing to be his plan? Am I willing to be part of it? Am I just looking for, I'm probably offending all of you at some point. I'm sorry, right? I'm just going to take that from Janet. She said, you're just all going to be offended. But do we just lament and rant on Facebook? Or are we willing to not put our hope in the next political leader or not put our hope in the next pastor who's going to have all the right answers? But no one knows those people don't know my family members. Those people don't have the influence that I have in my circle. Those people don't have any ability to make disciples of my children, of the sphere that God has given me. Am I willing to be his plan in the territory that he has given me? Yes, I, I'm not on a huge platform. I'm not some amazing person, but I have been given a territory. And will I make disciples? I plead with you. Will you make disciples of the territory that he has given you? God has a plan and it is you. Now, how? What do I do? Right, we'll talk more about it tomorrow. Go to Taylor's workshop. She'll give you lots of practical things. But how do I need to go to seminary? Do I need to like have read my Bible 18 times? Do I need to like know Greek and Hebrew? Do I need to have a perfect 12 week, clerk, 12 week curriculum? Like, what do I need to have in order to be ready to make disciples? Do I need to know that participle thing? <laughs> right, like, is that gonna be on the test? Like, am I gonna have to know that in order to make disciples? Here's what I want you to know today. Here's what I want you to know this morning. You already have what you need to begin making disciples. The word for the morning is already. If you remember a word, it is already. You already have what you need to begin making disciples. When we look at the Gospels, when we first look at the first disciples, we see uneducated men. They were nothing special, right? We see, I mean, they're watching things too, right? They're like, so can I like sit on your right and your left? What are you talking about, right? We see G uh, Peter, who's just constant foot and mouth, right? We see ordinary men, we see tax collectors, we see simple fishermen. They had all sorts of variation in background, in temperament, in personality. There's no common thread whatsoever among these men, not to do with their previous employment or their education. That is not what qualified them to be disciple makers. And yet all of them, except Judas, we'll talk about him later, went out as incredibly successful disciple makers of Jesus and turned the world upside down. All of them did. What was the one thing that qualified them to be disciple makers? One thing and one thing only. They had been with Jesus. They had been with Jesus. That is why they were qualified to make disciples. That was their training. That was their expertise. That was their qualifying characteristic. They had been with Jesus. Disciples of Jesus are qualified to make disciples of Jesus. And then I would say disciples of Jesus are commanded to make disciples of Jesus. Followers of Jesus are qualified to make followers of Jesus. Children of God are chosen as, as midwives, if you will, to give birth to more and more children of God, to add to the family of God. You already have what you need to begin making disciples. Now, 
Maybe you're not quite ready to like teach a class on discipleship, okay? Notice I said you have what you need to begin making disciples. We will grow in this, certainly, right? Let's say we've got um, Jane, and Jane has just come to know and follow Jesus, and she's still on meth, but she's learning to follow Jesus. And so she goes, okay, I already have one name to make disciples. She's probably not going to come up to the to the pastor and say, all right, I'm ready to teach a class on discipleship. Maybe not, probably not, right? But she can go back to the girl who she was dealing with before and getting high with, and she can make a disciple of her. There's always somebody that we can make a disciple of. So yes, we will grow in this. Certainly, this is lifelong. I feel like I'm about six months old still. I mean, I've been actively participating in making disciples for about... Uh, 17 years, and I still feel like I just am a toddling little baby. I mean, I was sitting there in Taylor's workshop just like, you know, like, oh, so much to learn. We grow, we become more confident in this. But my point is, you already have what you need to begin making disciples, and I want you to know three things this morning. Good news. This morning is all good news, by the way. Like, yes, so fun when we just get a bunch of good news. I want you to know three things this morning. Wow, I hope all of these will make you say, wow. Right, the picture of you, I just want you to know, I was praying for you. The picture I had of all of you was sitting here and like looking down and realizing that your lap was full of treasure. And being like, wow, look at all this, right? So the three things I want you to know, wow, I am already loved. Wow, I am already rich. And wow, I am already called. I am already loved. I am already rich. I am already called. First of all, I want us to know, wow, I am already loved. All of what you do comes out of who you are. Right? Y'all know that. My husband's saying, I'll say it a gazillion times, who's before dues? Who's before dues? He says it all the time. You see it in the scripture. In every one of Paul's epistles, you see who's before dues, right? Who we are informs what we do. All that we do always comes back to who we are. It always comes out of our identity. Right? So everything that we do always comes from our Identity. Identity is what I want you to sink your teeth into this morning. All of our disciple making, all of our ministry, all of our evangelism, all of our outreach, everything we do flows out of who we are. And Jesus was the same way. Jesus ministered out of who he was. And the beautiful thing was that who he was, his identity was securely settled before he did any disciple making. Before he preached a single sermon before he did a single miracle, before he healed anyone, before he ministered to anyone, before he did any of his works, his identity was firmly established. I see this in Matthew 3. If you flip to Matthew 3 briefly with me, this is in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, you know, there's variations in each of the Gospels, but in the Gospel of Matthew, um, uh, Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, is the first glimpse we have of Jesus as an adult. Okay? So up to this point, all we know is that he was born and he was a baby. Okay? This is the very first glimpse we have of him. 
as an adult. So all that Jesus has done so far in terms of like all of his awesomeness, he was just born. That's it. Okay. So if you've been born, you're like at the same level of awesomeness of what Jesus has done, right? Okay. That's all we've seen him do so far. All he's done is be born. Nothing else. And we see him here in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, and he comes from Galilee, and he comes to um, the Jordan to where John the Baptist is, and John has been paving the way, right, preparing the way for the Lord, and he has been baptizing, and he comes up to John, and he says, I need to be baptized by you. Very first thing he does, get baptized. Um, or he, he goes to be baptized. John says, I need to be baptized. Right? You, what are you doing? He says, let it be so. And then he consented. John consented. And Jesus was baptized, verse 16, and immediately he came up from the water. Behold, the heavens were open to him. This would be a really cool baptism, right? <laughs> open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God. Just it's a beautiful picture of the Trinity, right? We're going to hear the voice of the Father. We're going to see the Spirit of the dove. We'll see the Son being baptized. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Why was he pleased? Jesus hadn't done any awesomeness yet. Because the father was pleased before he even began ministering. The father was pleased because Jesus was his son. That's his identity. None of us who have had precious baby children deliver this child and hold him, you know, tears streaming down our face, and we're like, as soon as you start getting straight A's, I'm going to be so pleased. <laughs> right? No, it's ridiculous. As soon as you learn to ride your bike, I'm going to be so pleased. No, right? Y'all know you have a baby and you just get crazy brain. I mean, you're just like, oh, I isn't she amazing? I mean, we just, my cousin just had a baby, and before that, they were kind of standoffish about kids, and now they're just like, can you tell? I mean, he's so advanced. <laughs> I know, he's like 10 days old. Like, I can tell. I mean, he's already, I can see his eye movement, and he's, he's spectacular. And we all do it, you know? We're just like, this little baby, baby hasn't done anything but poop. And you're just like, oh, they're amazing. I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased with you. Right? That's how we are. It's like a no-brainer. That is what God says over Jesus. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Did you know that if you are in Christ Jesus, those exact same words are spoken over you. If you are in Christ Jesus, you have his righteousness. You have his record. Not your screw-up record that I have too, Right? I have the record of Jesus Christ. And when I say, you know, all those things I always mess up, he's like, what are you talking about, baby girl? I see the righteousness of Jesus Christ in you. I am so pleased. You are my daughter. This is my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. Before you do any awesomeness, before you make disciples, before you teach a Bible class, before you're a pastor's wife or a, a seminary teacher, whatever else you do, whatever the thing is that you do, before any of that, he says, this is my beloved child. I am well pleased. This is our identity, and we always work from our identity, not for our identity. We don't work our tail off so that we can earn a title or a role or try and find an identity. We work from an identity, which is, I am just a love child of God. And he is pleased with me. 
Now, the sad thing is that um, if I am God's plan, right? If God has a plan, and it is me, and it is you, we also know that the enemy has a plan, a tactic, um, and his target is you. So the enemy will do whatever he can to steal our identity. Whatever he can to feed us a false identity, right? Every single one of us probably at some point has taken on an identity that is some variation of this sentence. Our true identity is this is my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. Somewhere along the line, we get this is my blank with whom blank. And we get a name and we get a description. It can be from a teacher, it can be from a parent, it can be totally inadvertent, it can be nobody's fault, if you will, but the enemies who takes advantage of anything from our past and feeds us a false identity. And we project this up to God, we project this onto other people so that this is the identity we take on. Perhaps we've been given, this is a clumsy mess up with whom I am constantly frustrated. Perhaps we've been given, this is a performer with whom I expect perfection. Perhaps we've been given, this is a mistake with whom I feel regret about bringing them into the world. Perhaps we've been given, this is the not so special one with whom I am disappointed. I realize the enemy had spoken, this is a problem with whom, uh, who I am willing to merely tolerate. None of us want to be tolerated. We want to be loved. And the truth is, this is my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. If God has a plan and it's us, then Satan has a target and it's us. And he will do whatever he can to destroy the work of God. It is not necessarily that he cares a lick about us. But it is that he hates God. He hates God. He hates the plan of God. He hates to see people freed. He wants to see people in torment. He will do whatever he can to destroy the mission of God. And so if we are his plan, he will want to destroy us. And he is like a sniper picking off people. Lie. Get you to believe that lie about your identity. Get you to believe that lie about your identity. And he just picks us off. He is the father of lies. And if you have been fed a false identity, you know the source. But the father speaks over our life. This is my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. The truth for us to know this morning is, wow, I am already loved. Before I do anything else, I am already loved. Before I am a Bible teacher, before I am whatever other things I do, I am a loved child of God. But there's more, okay? There's even more he wants us to know this morning. The second thing I believe he wants us to know is, wow, I am already rich. I am already rich. See, the second way the enemy wants to keep us from being effective in making disciples is to think that we don't have what it takes. 
Right? I don't have the skills, the smarts, I don't have the abilities or the gifts, the talents, the resources, or the time. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough money. I don't have the spiritual gifts or talents. That's for like those other people, right? I'm tempted to be like, that's for those extroverts. <laughs> what about those of us who like really like to be alone? How are we supposed to make disciples, right? I, I don't have what it takes. This is the second biggest lie that the enemy feeds us. And I believe, I know this, someone in here needs to know this today. You are already rich. You are already rich. Did you know that when we are in Christ, the same way that we get his identity, when we are in Christ, all of the resources of Jesus Christ are at our disposal. All of the limitless resources, the same spirit that lived in Jesus lives in us. The Holy Spirit, Philippians 2, he's called the spirit of Jesus. The Holy Spirit resides in us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us. Do we believe that? <clears throat> Do we believe that we have the power of God at our disposal not like a genie, not to just do what we want, but for his purposes. We have his power. We are equipped and enabled. Jesus said, greater works than these will you do. Crazy. Does anybody believe that? Right? That we will do the works that Jesus did and even greater. The disciples didn't have any money. They didn't have extraordinary resources. They didn't have any more time than we have. And yet they followed Jesus. They did what Jesus told them to do. And limitless resources were channeled through their lives. One story gives us a perfect example of this. I mean, there's tons. But if you turn over to Matthew 14, sticking with the book of Matthew, if you turn over to Matthew 14, we see a beautiful example of this. This is one of those places John the Baptist has just been beheaded. And so Jesus, in a very human, hello nature, this is his cousin, he is withdrawn to a desolate place, I would, I would uh, venture to say, to grieve. Right? He is withdrawn to a desolate place, and you know what happens, right? The crowds follow. So much for a little moment of peace and quiet. He withdraws, and pretty soon we've got thousands of people around. The, the scripture says we've got 5,000 um, men. This is way more than that, right? If you count women and children. 1,000, maybe 10,000 people. Huge, enormous crowds surrounding them. Okay? Now, the problem is that they need to eat. Impossible. Absolutely impossible, right? This is an insane, excuse me, insane number of mouths to feed. Right? You think it's hard to keep your kids fed. Right? Sometimes I'm like, I cannot keep their bellies full. And I got two. Two of them, right? We're talking 10,000. 10, okay. Anytime we think that he is calling us to something that is too impossible, right? Take a look here. Feed 10,000 people just like that out in a, in a, um, a desolate place. God specializes in the impossible. Right? In fact, you can usually know the mark of what is an authentic call of God in your life when it's impossible. Virtually, like if someone's called to something that they can kind of do in their own strength, I'm like, eh, probably not. If, so, if it's way beyond our ability, that's the kind that God specializes in. He had us on a crazy journey about this last year. We're like, um, yeah, so that's a neat idea. You're going to need to go ask somebody with a whole lot more resources than us. He's like, no, I want you. The disciples are quick, very quick to point out 
that they don't have what they need in order to do this, right? They don't have the resources that they need. In verse 15, you see this. It says it was evening and the disciples came to them and they said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves, right? Do you hear it? We are poor. We don't have what it takes to take care of this situation. We don't have what it takes. <coughs> Three things we see. Number one, we see we are poor in location. This is a desolate place. Do you hear them? their words? This is a desolate place. This is not the place to be feeding 10,000 people, Jesus. <laughs> Right? We'll need to go small, whatever. Right? This is a desolate place. See, Jesus, my location is not ideal. I don't have a great house for ministry. I don't have enough space. I don't have the right table or the right dishes or the right, right? Whatever. We've all, we don't have that right thing for hosting people. I don't have an ideal location. This is not an ideal place, Jesus. See, I'm poor. This is a desolate place. And then you see number two there, we are poor in time. The day is now over. Do you hear it? This is not the time to be serving dinner, Jesus. The day is now over. See, Jesus, there isn't time. I don't have enough time for this thing you've called me to. The time that's needed for something like this just isn't available to me. The day is over, so to speak. Or, you know what? My days for this sort of thing are past. This isn't the time. Maybe when I was younger. Maybe when whatever. The time for this just isn't the best time. I'm poor in time. So they come up with their own plan, right? Send the crowds away, right? They come up with their own plan based entirely upon what they perceive as their lack. How often have we done that? Right? Send the crowds away that they can buy food for themselves. We don't have the resources we need, so let's put the problem on the people. Make them take care of themselves. Right? Make them hike back into town while they're faint, right? And use their own money to buy their own food. We don't have enough, so there's no way I'm taking on their problem. When we perceive ourselves as poor, we are not ready to step into generous ministry. They literally make a plan based on being poor. How often do we do that? How often do we construct a plan or a scheme or a strategy based on our own perceived lack of resources? We look at what we have, and then we plan. That would be the world's method, worldly wisdom. God always does exactly the opposite. Right? He always does exactly the opposite. He always makes a plan, and it's almost always impossible. That's how he specializes. And then he provides the resources to carry out that plan. It's completely backwards. Jesus responds and tells them, No, <laughs> you don't need to send them away. You give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. Verse 16, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now notice that Jesus doesn't say, oh, no worries, I'll take care of it. He doesn't say that, does he? It is his power, but he is not taking the responsibility off of them. Who is supposed to feed the people? The disciples. 
He's putting the responsibility smack dab back on them. And he says, you give them something to eat. He knows they don't have what it takes to do this, right? Puts it smack dab back on them. And then they give him reason number three that they are poor. This is the real reason. We are poor in resources. We have only five loaves here and two fish, right? See, Jesus, I don't have the resources. I don't have enough money to give this thing away or host this thing or start this ministry or provide for these people. Ask, go ask a rich person, right? I have said that to the Lord, by the way, just open confession, right? I've been like, go ask that people who have tons of money, not me. Why on earth would he ask me for this thing? See, I am poor. And Jesus, they've got their, their, they, I can see them. They're like, this is all we have, five loaves and two fish. We are poor. And Jesus responds so simply. I love this. He says, bring them to me. Bring me what you have. Bring your terrible location to me. Bring your lack of time to me. Bring your empty bank account and your terrible job and your little teeny tiny income and bring it here to me. Bring all that you have in your hands and put it into mine. And then comes the miracle. They take what they have and he takes it into his hands and he blesses it and he breaks it. And then what does he do? He hands it back to them. They distribute it. Jesus himself, that we know of, didn't hand out a single piece of bread. Right? He simply broke it, multiplied it, and handed it back to them. The disciples took what was in their hands, gave it to Jesus, and then received it back, and then distributed to those in need. All it took was handing it over to Jesus for them to go immediately from being poor to rich. Do we believe that God can do that still? Do we believe that he can multiply the puny little amount of whatever we have to distribute? I gotta hurry up. That we would know and look in that instant and go, wow, I am already rich. When we take the tiny amount that we have and hand it to him and get it back from him and distribute it, we know, wow, I am already rich. You have all of the resources that you need to make disciples already at your disposal. Are we willing to hand them over to him? Number three, the third and final freeing truth. Wow, I am already called. I am already called. Who did Jesus call and how? We're going to focus more on this tonight. But first, he called them to come to him, and then he called them to go. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ... You have already been called to make disciples of all nations. Now tonight we're going to look more specifically um, at specific calling. So how do I know the specific area to which I have been called to make disciples? But the overarching calling to make disciples has already been given to us. We do not need to 
wait around for that to happen. We have already, they already waited uh, for Pentecost, for the Holy Spirit to come. We know that if we are uh, believers in Jesus Christ, if we have surrendered to him, we have been given the Holy Spirit already. We have the resources available to us to go. We are already loved. We are already rich. We are already called. You have limitless love and limitless resources at your disposal. So how do we come, how do we become more qualified to make disciples the same way that they did? We spend time with Jesus. We spend time with Jesus. If we want to know how to be fully equipped to be a disciple maker, we spend time with Jesus. We saturate our lives with his word, right? We engulf ourselves in the scriptures. We spend time with him in prayer. We spend less time trying to get just the right method or just the right plan or just the right formula, and we just spend time in his presence, praying over people, being honest with him, Obeying every single thing he tells us to do, even when it doesn't make a lick of sense. Right? Wow, I am already loved. Wow, I am already rich. Wow, I am already called. The word already, right, is really just what words put together. Already, right? How do we get ready? We already have all that we need to begin making disciples. Now again, I said it before, but we know that if God has a plan and it is you, then Satan has a target and it is you. So we spend time in God's word so that we will not be ignorant of his schemes, but we will be able to stand firm and carry out the commission that he has given to us. Knowing, wow, I am loved. Wow, I am rich. Wow, I am called. Amen. Let's pray.